podcast time. Hey, Jimmy. Jimmy, what time is it? It All Adds Up, the podcast that saves you all the money on all the things. Okay, welcome to our second deep dive episode. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at some of the topics that John and I discussed in our episode called Your Trash. So today, I'm joined by my good friend and waste expert, Caroline Ling. So Caroline, you're a graduate student at Stanford. Tell me a little bit more about your studies and research. Thanks, Lizzie. First of all, thank you for inviting me to your podcast, It All Adds Up. I'm very excited to be here to talk trash. I'm a joint degree student at Stanford University, pursuing an MBA and a Master of Science in Environmental Science. My work is focused on addressing the waste that our society produces. My friends call me the trash queen or waste nerd of Stanford, and I love that nickname. I own up to it because it matters to me to find ways to help individual consumers reduce our cost of living and help our society create value by reducing our waste generation. So how did you become interested in studying waste? Well, my obsession with waste really started when I was a kid. Growing up, I always remembered how much my grandma loved collecting all the jugs and jars in our tiny apartment. It was only 500 square feet, but she always kept those juggling jars around. Whenever I asked her, why don't we just throw them away? She would always say, there is no away and everything has a home. It's really interesting that you bring up this concept of a way. When John and I were doing research for our trash episode, I kept thinking about what it means to throw something away. It's kind of like this magical process where I put something in my dumpster, the trash collection service picks it up, and then I never see it again. It seems to go away forever. So my question is, where is a way? The answer to that question depends on what type of waste you're talking about. In the U.S., The most typical trash categories are trash or landfill, recycling, and composting. Let's take a look at trash or landfill first. That's the biggest source of our waste. So in 2018, the amount of municipal solid waste generated in the U.S. was 292.4 million tons. An average American generates about 4.4 pounds of trash every day. That's the equivalent to the weight of your um, pumpkin that you buy for Halloween carvings. Now, if you add up all those pumpkins over a year for just one person, the volume of those trash is equivalent to fill up the Leaning Tower of Pizza. And roughly, those trash, uh, 50% of those trash is landfill. Food is the biggest component in our landfill. It's about 24%. And plastics is the second category. They count it for over 18%. So for every landfill, imagine that's a man-made crater with an average size of 600 to 1,000 acres. So that means every landfill is the size of about 600 football fields. Currently in the U.S., there are more than 2,000 active landfills. So how does this waste generation affect our cost of living? Landfill is actually one of the biggest cost items on the balance sheet for our city and municipality governments. It usually costs about more than $10 billion over 10 years. When the real estate is expensive, such as in states like California and New York, the cost can go up. Once the landfill is full, 
The local government needs to keep monitoring the site for at least 25 years based on EPA regulations. The closing fee and ongoing operational costs could add up to about $2 million. It is a huge liability for our local governments. Now they're paid for by tax dollars, which then translate into your trash collection bills. So the more you dump in landfill, the more expensive it gets. And because of these economic and environmental reasons, our government is permitting fewer and fewer landfill sites over the years. And therefore, we'll eventually be running out of landfill space with our ever-increasing volume of waste generation. So it sounds like landfills are basically just permanent storage units for trash. How long does our stuff stay in the landfill? So let's take a look at the two most common categories in landfill, food waste and plastics. Well, food waste cannot fully degrade ever in a landfill setting. And things like plastics can take over 10,000 years to even decompose. This leads to a lot of health and environmental issues, which subsequently create financial costs for our society. Granted that since the 1970s, the federal government began requiring landfills to install lining systems to prevent leachate from leaking outside of the landfill. This regulation reduced some environmental damage, but the food and yard waste that we mentioned is decomposing and releasing methane. Landfill gas contributes to smog, worsening health problems like asthma. To make matters worse, landfills are usually permitted in low-income neighborhoods, and therefore these issues disproportionately affect populations with lower socioeconomic status. Again, just like how my grandma has taught me, there is no away. For my trash, away is the landfill site in Gilroy, California, 50 miles from where I live at Stanford. When people think about trash, they think out of sight, out of mind. But all our waste is not really out. It stays here long after we're gone. U.S. has more than 10,000 old landfills. Chances are you live near one within 20 minutes drive, or you're walking on a closed landfill when you're strolling the public parks. How could we reduce the financial and social costs associated with sending trash to landfills? We can actually use market forces here by making it more expensive to landfill. For example, a lot of European countries are constrained by very limited landfill space, so the government either ban landfill or charge a really high price for dumping. As a result, it creates the market incentive for producers, consumers, and waste haulers to divert waste away from landfill. For example, in Sweden, 50% of the trash is recycled and the rest 50% is burned to generate energy. Secondly, we can divert as much away from landfill as possible by switching to recyclables and compostables. And we'll take a look at these two categories in our trash collection services. Recycling products are repurposed into new products that society values and composting creates healthy soil that can be sold for agricultural purposes. But waste diversion requires proper source separation, education, better sorting technologies, and lots of regulatory tailwinds. So talk to me a bit more about recycling. I never know which materials I can and can't recycle, and it seems like every place I visit has a different recycling system with different rules. What is making recycling so difficult? Recycling rules differ across locations because each location has different recycling economics. Whether or not recycling is economical depends on if these products can be repurposed into materials that can be resold into our society. So let me contextualize this a little bit better. 
There is something called a material recovery facility that sorts through all the products that we leave in the recycling bins. These facilities then sell the recyclables to businesses that can repurpose the materials and sell them back to the market. For example, most of our plastic bottles are collected, sorted, and then processed into carpets at the end of its life. But the market demand for recycled materials fluctuates, which affects the economics of recycling. These market demands depend on what town or state you live in, and that's why not all recycling centers accept the same types of items. If the material recovery facilities in your local area can sell the sorted materials at a reasonable price to recoup the cost of operations, then these recyclables will take the scenic route to landfills. So, as an individual consumer, how do I know what I can recycle? While there's no universal truth regarding what is recyclable, a general rule of thumb is that most facilities accept plastics number one and two, but the demand for three, four, five, six, seven is quite unstable. And by that number, we mean the number you see inside the Chase and Arrow logo that you'll find on the bottom of the cup or box. Things like aluminum and glass usually have high value for material recovery facilities, but materials like chip bags and salad containers are recyclable but have lower second life value, so generally unaccepted by those material recovery facilities. And can you talk a little bit about single stream recycling versus multi stream recycling? Is one more economical than the other? Sure. Single stream recycling is when you can put all your recyclables in one bin. So all aluminum, plastic, cardboard, and paper can be tossed at all at one place. Multi-stream recycling is when you have to sort your recyclables based on material types and throw them in separate bins for collection. So single-stream recycling is easier from a consumer's perspective because we don't have to think or know too much about sorting the materials. But when you throw everything together in one bin, the recyclables can become contaminated. Which lowers their economic value as a product. For example, food grease on plastic containers can soil paper, which can contaminate a whole truckload of high-value recyclables when the haulers come to our neighborhood to pick up all the trash. This is why it's important to clean all the plastic containers in a single-stream recycling environment. Another troublesome item in single-stream recycling is the plastic bag. The plastic bags are infamous for a different reason. They get entangled in the sorting machines in your local recovery facilities, and they slow down the operations. As a result of these contamination issues, sadly, right now only two percent of all plastics are recycled into products with the same function. Eight percent is downcycled, and the rest is just landfilled, burned, or leaked to the environment in the forms of microplastics. On the other hand, a town in Japan has a multi-stream recycling system. That has 17 different bins. It can be more expensive to maintain the separate waste streams, but those increase the material recovery rate at the end of its product life. So it is a trade-off that waste management companies and our local governments need to think about. So you mentioned how paper can become contaminated if it's exposed to dirty plastic containers. Can you compost soiled paper? Yes, it is better to compost soiled paper than recycle it. In most cases. Paper is an item that can be recycled or composted, but in general, composting is a very important lever to divert organic waste from landfill. And organic waste means food scraps, yard trimmings, and soiled paper. In fact, 30 to 40 percent of our landfill is organic waste. States are starting to implement measures 
that allow for centralized industrial composting facilities that would take some load off of the landfills. But I could also compost at home, right? Yes, absolutely. Home composting is a great way to reduce your landfill waste if you don't have access to curbside organic waste collection programs. In fact, more than 90% of U.S. households currently don't have access to commercial or industrial composting. If you don't have an industrial composting center nearby, you can compost in your backyard or buy a warm composting kit. Composting is simple as long as you maintain a healthy ratio of what we'll call greens and browns. What's the difference between greens and browns? So greens are nitrogen-heavy products like vegetable and food scraps. Browns are carbon-heavy products like twigs, paper, and dry leaves. The most common recommendation I've seen for a brown to green ratio is somewhere between two to one and four to one. I know sometimes home composting may sound like a science project, but don't worry. You should be able to find composting information on your local government's website, or look up on U.S. Composting Council's website for helpful tips to get started. Besides home composting, you should also look for community gardens, urban farms that need compost materials near where you live. Institutions like schools, hospitals, and campuses should also run their on-site composting program. The decentralized composting model can be an essential part of the waste diversion effort, especially for cities and municipalities that don't currently have the infrastructure set up. So it sounds like proper separation of trash, recyclables, and compostables decreases landfill costs and adds valuable products back into the economy. But I imagine another approach to reducing overall waste collection prices is to simply generate less waste. So, what are some tips for reducing waste generation? Oh my God, I have so many to share.、Um, like I said before, we as consumers actually have a lot of power with our wallet. We should be mindful of our waste footprint because there is no away, and everything has a home. Here are some smart waste-free shopping strategies. For example,、uh, avoid thin plastics whenever possible. Buy in bulk. Invest in reusable kitchenware, such as silicon bacon mat. That one is my favorite because it looks nice and it lasts long. Look up some home composting toolkits and advocate for better packaging from your favorite snack brands. And stay engaged with your local legislators to support zero waste efforts. If you create less waste as a consumer, you end up paying less in waste collection fees as well. So I want to give a huge thank you to Caroline for shedding some light on the world of waste. I hope her insight provided some useful tips for how you can reduce your waste generation at home, allowing you to save money on your waste collection services. But even if these financial savings can seem small, just remember it all adds up. And be sure to follow us on social media. Our Instagram handle is It All Adds Up Podcast. Our website is It All Adds Up Podcast dot com, and you can find us on Facebook at It All Adds Up the Podcast. And a huge shout out to John for handling all of the audio work for this podcast. Follow his bands by searching Stray Tuesday or Mother of Earl on Spotify and Apple Music. <laughs>